Today on Ag News Daily. Sure, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, some of the resources that we have available, like through our website, we have a forum where members can talk back and forth, ask questions to each other. Good afternoon. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell, joined by Tanner Winterhoff, brought to you today by Douglas Plant Health to unharness your soil's fertility and maximize yield. Consider Douglas Plant Health. Good morning, Tanner. That's the correct introduction. You bet. Good morning. We have our sun back. It is still going to blow absolutely crazy today. Uh, it just doesn't seem like we can get away from the wind, but at least we've got our sunshine. Yes, that's true. And, you know, speaking of that wind, Tanner, it's been kind of eerie. I haven't seen too many people suggesting that we're at Dust Bowl era levels, but I have seen a few folks on Twitter mentioning how windy it has been, especially down in Texas, Oklahoma, some of those Southern Plain areas as well. And you know, that storm that we got here in Iowa, they also saw some storms similar to that down there in Texas and the Texas Panhandle, 70 mile per hour winds through West Texas and into the Texas Panhandle on Tuesday. And they're saying this might be the final nail in the coffin for even irrigated winter wheat that was already barely hanging on. But Joni, I might butcher her last name, Blunt, B-L-O-U-N-T on Twitter was the one I saw saying that this might be the second dust bowl in it. And her photo is very dusty. It looks just completely covered the roads, the fields. It's very sandy and dusty. Right. And those areas, as we've talked about, have been relatively dry and some have laid fallow for quite some time because they just don't have the moisture to germinate a crop. So it, I can see it's got the makings of becoming one. Uh, someone should earmark that tweet so we can refer back to it here in about yes. three months. No kidding. But we also have also on the north side of things have been seeing the uh, quote unquote blizzard of a century come through and dumping feet of snow in the northern plains and Canada. So quite an interesting April, to say the least. I feel like we always say that, though. Every year, it seems like some sort of weather event happens in some part of the country, and we always think, what an interesting year. Yeah, and and it's conversations with my clients. Everybody refers back to you know, there's never one year the same as the other. And that's what right. makes farmers so great is how they have to adapt. You know, a lot of the basics stay the same, but you still have to adapt to the environment, which leads me to, you know, the, the age old no-till versus strip till versus, you know, extreme till or deep tillage debate. You know, every farmer has a practice that works best for their farm or an understanding of their soils. And that conversation, you know, used to go back to, well, we don't want to kill the worms. Have you ever heard that, Delaney, when they talk about yes. wanting, wanting to have as many worms as possible? But we've got a problem because I stumbled across an article now that says there is an invasive jumping worm now in 14 Midwest states. Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Louisiana. Now, I'm not sure how Texas and Louisiana are considered Midwest, um, but those are the states that the Asian jumping worm 
has been discovered and they are invasive. So they will thrash around kind of like a snake when they move instead of just slinking like a regular worm. And the reason they're considered invasive is they grow twice as fast as the regular earthworm, which means they consume twice as much, which means roots in the area in which these worms are living and reproducing uh, are at more danger than they are for benefit. Uh, but I still, you know, it's the age old debate. We want our earthworms, but now we might have branched out into an invasive species of worm. Yeah. I don't, how do you tell if it's a jumping worm versus a regular worm, Tanner? So it says their characteristics have a white band and mm. it's flush with their metallic body. It can be distinguished from the night crawler, which has a typical reddish brown band. Because I was going to say after big storms like this, uh, what, what day did storms come through? Yesterday morning, I suppose, when I woke up, there were worms all over our driveway. So I didn't know if those were jumping worms, right. but they were the red and brown colored worms. So I'm guessing they were not jumping worms. Well, phew, you can uh, consider yourself clear, but I would keep an eye out. Okay. Well, we're not cleared yet on avian influenza cases. And the American Farm Bureau is saying that Easter egg prices this year are going to be higher, but actually not due to bird flu, Tanner, just due to the fact that we are paying more money for goods at this point in time. And it's interesting. I don't remember if I shared this on the podcast the other day, but I went to the grocery store and didn't even think anything about it, but the regular, you know, dollar, whatever eggs were completely gone. And I was like, that seems weird. But then I had to think about it. It's, oh, duh, we have bird flu here very strongly in Iowa. So of course we're going to see some shortages at the grocery store. But like I said, the American Farm Bureau isn't noting that's the reason for the higher jump in egg prices. They're saying it's just adjusted for inflation and that we're about 15% higher on egg prices this Easter season compared to normal. Yeah. I was actually having a conversation with my wife about this as she struggled to even find Easter egg dyeing kits, wow. which was, which was interesting, but her network that she follows on social media was uh, stating out to pay attention that if you went to the grocery store now or in the next couple of weeks, you will probably only find brown eggs available. Yes. That's what I thought. Uh, is, that's what I found as well. Yeah. That's what I yep. found. Exactly what I found as well. So. Well, on Tuesday, the EPA released their first ever work plan to protect endangered species from pesticides. This comprehensive plan, the EPA says, meets the intersection of an opportunity and an obligation in the Endangered Species Act while maintaining pesticide access for farmers and other users. So that's how the article starts off, but the headline says pesticide approval system needs to be revamped, according to the EPA. So as I dug deeper, Delaney, uh, it seems like a very political crossroads of how do we take care of the environment while also potentially providing a little bit more of a streamlined process for getting pesticides approved. So their goal under the reform is to take the current pesticide approval system, which has major setbacks, that is almost 20 years old, and allow it to be more streamlined, which also 
um, may take some of the litigation off of the court system. So it sounds like right now, navigating through that, uh, we right now have not only created a long and arduous process for approval, but we also have created enough ambiguity that our courts are having to decide it for us. So uh, if you want to check that out, I would go to agweb.com. It's got a step out, a le- you know, a list of steps, about nine steps long um, that we would be able to look through to see how they propose, but they just started working on it. So I'm sure there's much, much more to come. But to remind our listeners, for many years, U.S. farmers in select markets have trusted their SP1 as an integral part of their crops fertility program. Today, as fertilizer prices soar and supply chain challenges loom, DPH Biologics is expanding access to their trusted biofertilizer, helping growers circumvent supply challenges while improving their crop yield and profitability. With their TerraTrove SP1 Classic, the complete biofertilizer, you can replace up to 50% of your starter fertilizer. To learn more about this, visit dphbio.com. All right. Well, thanks, Tanner, for that uh, reader for today. I wanted to take us over here and look at this interesting piece of news that was coming out of ADM, highlighting another investment into the alternative protein space. They recently announced that they are expanding their Decatur, Illinois facility by $300 million to address the alternative protein market. Uh, They said in their news release that they also plan to open a new protein innovation center uh, which they said is, quote, power partnership innovation and speed to meet customer needs. So we don't know exactly what that means, but this project is not going to be a quick one. They're expecting it to be completed by the first quarter of 2025. So it's certainly going to take a few years to get that expansion up and going. But they said the alternative meat and dairy sales alone are expected to grow by about 14% a year to reach $125 billion in 2030. And they said for as far as alternative proteins go, uh, I don't believe they really specified what type of alternative proteins that they were going to be able to um, expand into, whether that was plant-based or laboratories or whatnot, but they just said alternative proteins. So I would assume it's a combination of all of those different things, Tanner. Yeah, and I I was going to ask, so I'm glad that you made that point. Uh, Right now, going around Twitter is a picture of a label that says lab-grown beef. And uh, the question circulating that is, would you buy it? So it's quite interesting to see how um, this is hitting the marketplace and expanding. I don't doubt their projections are far off. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a large group of consumers that will begin adopting that direction. But sticking on the meat side, Delaney, officially yesterday announced the CEOs of the four largest U.S. meat packers are going to testify in front of Congress on a hearing. So the chief executives of Cargill, Tyson, JBS, and National Beef have agreed to attend a hearing put on by Congress, and the House Agricultural Committee will navigate that. So David Scott will lead the conversation, but obviously it'll be front in front of congressional members. It's very important, very vital, and very urgent to hear the perspectives is what David said from those CEOs. The increased profits and prices for meatpacking companies have continued to amplify Washington's scrutiny 
of the U.S. packing industry. So the Biden administration, of course, criticized the lack of competition in the sector. And when they announced in January their plan for new rules to boost competition and stop exploitation. So we're seeing the next steps forward, Delaney. Uh, we do know that we will get those four CEOs in front of Congress. Uh, they also stated that they will work on putting together a panel of farmers in the industries and ranchers to get their perspective on the consolidation and potentially allow them to provide questioning themselves. All right. Well, uh, let's see. I tell you what, I don't have much other news left today, Tanner, other than it sounds like the Bank of Canada is also raising interest rates as of yesterday morning, about a half a percent increase there following on the footsteps, of course, of the U.S. Federal Reserve expected to do the same at next week's meeting. So we are certainly seeing lots of nations follow suit in that, although none really as bad as Argentina with their nearly 50% interest rate, Tanner. Yeah, I think that's going to be a pretty common theme as we as we roll forward. Um, I don't have the markets pulled up at the time right now, but I do know that when I looked this morning, Corn prices were were rising due to the bullish pressure. Um, I did catch an article this morning that says this cool, wet weather we're having here in the Midwest is putting a little bit of pressure on that. And our December contract is looking to hit another high uh, as we push through that. Of course, ethanol output, that is one article I didn't get covered this morning, did fall for the third straight week. Not by a lot, but it did fall uh, as we look at that. But how about the other markets, Delaney, outside of corn? How are those looking? Well, I tell you what, you know, the other thing that really kind of shot markets higher in the overnight was some news that Ukraine was shot or that Ukraine shot a major Russian ship with cruise missiles last night. So the overnight certainly saw a little shot in the arm there, which we saw in the overnight here as we're getting into the opening action all grains are up across the board. Corn, putting in a new contract high there in the December contract. Uh, wheat, soybeans also higher. On the livestock side of things this morning, Tanner, uh, we're certainly seeing some green across the cattle complex and uh, lean hogs, mostly lower this morning. So all eyes are going to be on what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, of course, but also uh, what kind of planting progress and planting condition numbers are we going to be getting each week? That's really what the markets are going to be focusing on here moving forward, because as we've talked about before, this planting season is largely expected to be a slow one. Yeah, I, I, the way it's shaping up and the conversations that I get to have, um, it's either going to appear slow or all the crops going to go in in a very short window of time. Absolutely. So it could be interesting to see how those things transpire, but Tanner, I think aside from our interview for today, I just wanted to remind folks once again that we are sponsored today by Douglas Plant Health. As fertilizer prices soar and supply chain challenges loom, DPH Biologicals is expanding access to this trusted biofertilizer, SP1, helping growers circumvent supply challenges while improving crop yield and profitability with Teratrove SP1 Classic, the complete biofertilizer you can replace up to 50% of your starter fertilizer. Just head to dphbio.com. Tanner, with that, we're chatting about 
an alternative crop today. We don't talk about this one a whole lot, but I had cross paths with Rachel Berry, the uh, president of the Illinois Hemp Growers Association, not all that long ago at a Young Leaders and Ag uh, workshop of sorts and was very impressed by Rachel and her interest in the agricultural industry. So we're going to turn it over to Rachel to talk about the Illinois Hump Growers Association. Well, folks, I'm very excited to chat today with Rachel Berry, founder and CEO of the Illinois Hemp Growers Association. Rachel, certainly excited to talk to you today about the Hemp Association, because I think over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of producers asking a lot of questions about how to grow hemp, if it's worthwhile. So I'm excited to get your take on all of those things today. So thanks for joining us. Awesome. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Delaney. Thanks for having me on. So Rachel, before we dive into the Illinois Hemp Growers Association specifically, I wanted to learn a little bit more about your background because it sounds like you kind of fell into this organization, into this uh, lifestyle, uh, but didn't necessarily grow up on a farm or have a background in this arena. How did you get involved in hemp in the first place? And what was your background like leading up to this point? Yeah, that's a good question. Um so I actually grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. So like you said, agriculture is um, really not in my background, but I had an opportunity um, in my early 20s. I had been working in mental health for a number of years and studying to become a nurse. Um, I had an opportunity in my uh, early 20s to move to a farm um, and try my hand in, you know, the farming space, gardening, et cetera. Um, Mental health was a tricky space to work in um, for me at that time and that point in my life. And um, something like, you know, moving toward working with the land seemed very interesting to me. <laughs> and I'm glad that I did um, because now it's been 10 years since I made the move to my small 13-acre uh, family farm. Um, and it's been quite an adventure just starting out learning to grow food um, and then eventually as I started to scale up wondering, you know, what kind of crop might I want to grow um, on my farm? Um, and that's when I came to industrial hemp, um, not just for um, all the cool stuff I can do, whether that's medicine or textiles, building materials, um, et cetera, but also for the um, regenerative possibilities to uh, clean up some of my soil and, um, you know, use what I grow on my farm. So, Rachel, did you have a lot of uh, issues getting into the hemp space? Are there a lot of regulations and hoops you had to jump through to dive into that crop? Yeah, actually, when I when I first got interested in hemp, it was not legal to grow in Illinois at that time. So I did band together with um, like-minded folks through other organizations, lobbyists, et cetera, um, to try to champion that bill uh, through our legislator. And we were successful in 2018. Um, Legislation is still kind of ongoing. There's CBD safety and um, banking, other types of regulations that are still in the works. But when we first got started, yeah, we <clears throat> we didn't have the, you know, even the legal ability to grow hemp. So championing, championing through that um, and then moving forward um, with all the knowledge that we learned along the way, um, that's really what led to us wanting to start the Illinois Hemp Growers Association is to give back. I mean, why did you decide to grow hemp in the first place? 
So it was um, the combination of wanting to use it to remediate soil on my property um, because of the the farmers that we have around us spraying their crops, just knowing that we have kind of an ally on our side as we develop our farm further. Um, But also, you know, it's an exciting new crop. It does have a lot of um, abilities, whether that be medicine, whether that be, you know, something like building materials or textiles. I was heavily drawn into the idea and still am working on this idea of growing hemp fiber on my farm um, so that I can use it for building materials on my farm, you know, for my animal housing, et cetera. Um, We do have chickens and ducks right now, but we, you know, we want more animals and we're going to need housing for them um, to be able to grow the building material on my property Um, to be able to use, you know, every part of the plant is useful. So anything I didn't use um, for the building material could be used for animal bedding, et cetera. Um, Even growing food, just knowing that I could grow this crop and it would be very useful to me on my farm. um, That was, that was the main reason that I wanted to work with hemp. So in your fight for the regulations and the federal laws in Illinois, what benefits did you decide to offer to the members of your association? Sure, that's a great question. Um, Well, right now, because the industry is so new, just having a source of information, somebody that you can call and talk to, um, we do consultation, um, you know, we share our own um, experiences and, you know, put that out into the community. Um, I think, you know, even myself as a young advocate for hemp um, and a new farmer trying to find resources, trying to find folks who could, you know, give you the the resources you needed, point you in the right direction. Um, even, you know, we come out to folks' farms and, and talk to them that way as well. But um, just being um, somebody that, or, or an organization that you can um, really work with, that, you know, we're kind of boots on the ground type here in Illinois. A lot of the hemp organizations are nationwide. So having somebody that's here in the state, knows the state, knows the agricultural scene, Um, We build um, relationships with other organizations who, you know, may or may not know about hemp and, you know, could um, work with it within their organizations. We work with lawmakers. Um, We help folks talk to their lawmakers. Um, There's just so much learning, even, you know, farmers even learning about uh, whether hemp would would be a good fit for their farms. There's so many questions um, so just being a resource for the people of Illinois, whether you're a farmer, a business owner, a consumer, a, a legislator, um, and anywhere in between, we're here as a resource. And Rachel, as you look at being a resource for Illinois hemp growers, you know, like I mentioned earlier, this space has been a lot of a lot of question marks from growers, you know, from the legality perspective, from an insurance perspective, and from just a general, how do we grow this? And what is our target market uh, after we do grow this crop? What kind of resources has the Illinois Hemp Growers Association put out there? And what advice would you have for farmers looking to potentially enter this space? Sure, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, Some of the resources that we have available, like through our website, we have a forum. Um, where members can talk back and forth, ask questions to each other, ask questions of us, get feedback from the community, from other organizations that use our website, um, plugging into internship opportunities, working with colleges. Um, we have a legislative tool that teaches you a bit about storytelling and how to talk to your legislators, t- you know, tell your story and, um, you know, help use your voice with the issues. Like you said, there's still 
pending legislation. Um, and most of that is um, really focused on like the, the cannabinoids, the CBD and other cannabinoids. Um, but, you know, there's fiber and grain as well, which is a little bit um, in the background. And really, that's where we shine, where I shine, especially I do grow hemp and I grow the fiber and grain varieties. Um, so as the as this develops, being a resource, not only for those who are interested um, and using cannabis or growing cannabinoids, using can- cannabinoids in their business, um, we're just consumers wanting to learn more about it. Um, we help plug in. We have, you know, our membership and our sponsorship. So whether that you're looking for a, a processor for your hemp or you're looking to plug into an, uh, maybe a co-op um, of folks who want to grow hemp together, um, there's many different routes to go in the hemp space and even just having the IHGA there to help you figure out which path is the best for you. Um, that's very helpful for a lot of folks. Um, just making sure that there's someone that you can bounce ideas off. Um, so you're not, you know, going down a path that, you know, has a dead end. The industry is still very new. Um, it's been coined as the wild West. People call hemp the wild West. Um, and I, you know, the longer I spend in this space, the more I understand why, um, there's a lot of education gaps and that's not just farmers, that's, um, you know, processors and, and consumers too. So, um, yeah, just, you know, and the more questions we get, the more we can learn from the industry as well. So it's a lot of learning back and forth using what we have on the website, using, um, our resources, uh, you know, uh, in our own backyard folks like the Midwest Hemp Council, um, you know, and then there's more um, specialty industries or specialty um, organizations like the U.S. Hemp Building Association, which I also serve on the board for, which is just about hemp building materials. Like there's so many niches. Um, again, I hope I answered your question because there's that's a big question. <laughs> well, Rachel, for consumers or farmers or producers, processors, anything like that, that want to reach out to y'all for more education or anything like that, where can they find you online? Sure. That's IllinoisHGA.com. And we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and all those socials. Um, You can best reach me by email or by reaching out through our website. My email is Rachel at IllinoisHGA.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, again, a big thank you there to Rachel. Certainly interesting, Tanner, that uh, she started this all completely from scratch. Yeah, I I was excited to hear the conversation. I didn't get to participate, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but that sounded like a lot of fun. It certainly was. And uh, just an interesting background that she has nonetheless getting into this space, into the regenerative agricultural space, growing up in, you know, the big city in Illinois. Uh, but overall, just really interesting that we do see people stepping into the industry who are interested and willing to learn and bring new ideas to the table. Yeah, that's great. But Delaney, we will not be dropping an episode tomorrow, correct? That is correct. We're taking the day off. Uh, The markets are closed tomorrow for Good Friday. So markets will be closed. A lot of businesses will be closed. Hack News Daily will be closed, Tanner. Hey, there you go. So listeners, this is our chance to tell you have a great weekend and a happy Easter. And what do you say, Delaney? Should we let the people go? 
Let's let him go. 